And now we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, by now, uh, most of you have heard uh, how my family and I got to go down to California for a few weeks uh, this summer, and there have been quite a few that have asked, what it is, is it about California that we enjoy? You know, do we have family that we're visiting? Not anymore. We used to know a lot of people there, but they've all sort of spread out. But California has always been a special place for my family. We've gone there a number of times in my life. And the primary reason for this is because both of my parents spent some time at school there. My mother was a high school ambassador for South Africa uh, at West Covina High. My father did his doctorate at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena. So as a family, you know, we, we traveled over there when he was in school, and, and we've been back a number of times. And one of these times was when I was 20 years old. I just returned from my famous five months of adventures, surfing and river guiding in South Africa. So as a family, we decided to go on holiday. Mom, Dad, my two sisters, and myself piled into the Toyota Camry, and uh, with my surfboard on the roof and my guitar in the back window, which uh, my poor sisters had to deal with the whole way down the coast to Pasadena, which is just northeast of L.A. And uh, yeah, it was a fun journey, a beautiful journey, of course, a long journey. And so I remember one night along the way down, uh, we pulled over to a hotel or motel or whatever it was after a long, hot day in the car and all went straight for the pool and jumped into the pool. And I remember the water feeling so nice, so cool and refreshing, that I decided to have a little sit uh, at the bottom of the deep end. Now again, if you remember in those days, I, I was now an avid and experienced surfer. And if I do say so myself, I could hold my breath quite a long time back in those days. I enjoyed being surrounded by water. So as I say, I just decided to sit on the bottom of the pool for, for quite a while. Um, when I finally came up, I arose to a bit of a panic uh, among the rest of the family who thought I was drowning. And uh, I was immediately scolded because I could have easily lost consciousness without knowing. And, you know, considering all that I'd just been through in the past five months previous, I've always found this memory a little bit amusing. Um, until yesterday. Now, the way I presented this at the first service, I realized was a bit too scary in the foreshadowing, so just, it's, it's okay. But yesterday, I was visiting my parents, and the kids were in the hot tub, and perhaps because she's just got back from spending some time in the waves down in California, young Adeline decided to hang her feet over the edge, lie back, and just have a little hangout under the water. Uh, for rather an extended period of time. Wouldn't you know it, she arose to a panic, and my thinking how potentially dangerous this was, because she could easily lose consciousness without knowing. <laughs> I didn't uh, scold her again, as I have done <laughs> before. I just told her, please stop doing that. Don't do that anymore. But the moral of the story is that as we grow, we sometimes understand that our parents, you know, maybe did know what they were talking about some of the time. 
And, and I realize that's not the best example, but as, you know, as I say, that is the most recent example of that lesson. Today we will take a look at how this moral applies to the declaration in the creed that we believe in God, the Father, the Almighty. Last week we began looking at the church's shared statement of faith, and we're reminded that it is shared, not just by our church, not just by Open Gate Church, not just by our church family, the Anglican Church in North America, but by the whole church, universal, the whole church throughout the world, throughout history. Before there were any different denominations with different views on different matters, there was this statement of faith. And for most, there remains this statement of faith, the statement of what we believe, what it is we have faith in, this statement, the creeds, both versions, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And our Catechism, which I've mentioned before, which is simply a helpful journey through questions and answers about what it means to be a Christian, affirms that the creed is a consensus declaration that comes to us with the resounding universal endorsement of fellow faithful believers over nearly 2,000 years. It has been recited by Christian communities throughout the history of the church, and it serves as a benchmark of orthodoxy, of right belief guiding our understanding of God's revealed truth at points where our sin-clouded minds might go astray. It's a summary of biblical truths, and it is designed to lead inquirers, seekers, those with questions, those with doubts, into grounded personal faith in the triune God as it testifies to the vital core of God's self revelation for our salvation. That's how it is presented in the Catechism. And based on this, I shared last week that I hope that our journey through these declarations that we stand and make together on a regular basis here at Open Gate Church will give us the opportunity to seek, to grapple with, to wrestle with some of the questions and struggles that some of us may have with our unchanging ancient faith in an ever-changing modern world. And as I say unchanging, this comes with the recognition that the creeds themselves were even developed over four centuries. That's a lot of time. And so already there, there are some who have questions about this, like what role did politics have to play in the development? What did the church believe before this? Is what the Nicene Creed says different from the Apostles' Creed? So I hope that over the course of this series, we will get to wrestle with many of those questions. Now, last week, I also mentioned a pastor from England named Nikki Gumbel, who developed a series of discussions called the Alpha Course. And I noticed many of you nodding your heads, as I mentioned this last week. And a few weeks ago, we did get to hear from Brian, who uh, shared a bit about how the Alpha Course contributed to his coming to faith. The Alpha Course also shares the essentials of our Christian faith and how they fit into and how they're relevant to the context of today's world. But it also addresses some of the questions that come up in this discussion. One of the books that was most helpful to me when I was grappling with questions about my own faith back when I was a young student at UVic was 
one called Searching Issues, written by Nicky Gumbel. was handed to me by my father, perhaps when, you know, he was becoming a bit concerned with how many questions I had. This book addresses a number of questions that are common to so many who are exploring Christianity. The questions like, what about other religions? Why does God allow suffering? Is the Trinity unbiblical, unbelievable, or irrelevant? And one of the invitations for this series, going through the creed together, is that we will be able to look at some of these questions, because some of us probably still have them. And the hope is though is that it won't just be for our own sake, not just questions we have, but also that it will equip us, give us some tools to help us to answer questions that others may have about our faith, if we're ever blessed with the opportunity to talk about it with them. So it's to equip us for those chance encounters as well as intentional encounters, because we as a church would also love the opportunity at some point to run an Alpha course here again, hopefully not in the not-too-distant future, because we do long to share what we have, this wondrous gift of grace through faith with those who haven't yet received it. So as we go through the creed, we are going to be opening up a few more cans of worms, as they say. Let it never be said of me that I don't love a good can of worms. And it seems to be working already. Uh, I've already had someone come up with an insightful, understandable question, one that a lot of us probably still grapple with to varying degrees, about the Trinity. And this is because last week we looked briefly at the first declaration of the Creed. I believe in God. Or, in the Nicene Creed, we believe in one God. Now, both creeds then go on to describe our one God in three paragraphs as three persons. And on its face, this doctrine of the Trinity might look confusing or even like a bit of a contradiction. How can three be one? How can one be three? And as Nicky Gumbel points out, it's true that the word that we use to describe God as three in one, Trinity, doesn't appear in the Bible. It was first used in its Greek form by an early Christian writer named Theophilus. He was the bishop of Antioch in about 180 AD. We don't really need to worry about that word today, at least because the word Trinity doesn't appear in the creed either. However, what we do see in the creed is a direct reflection of what is revealed in Scripture that the Father is God, that the Son is God, and that the Holy Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. And we affirm that the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments contained in the Bible are God's Word written. And both the Old and New Testaments affirm countless times that there is one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 declares, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then in the New Testament, James, the brother of Jesus, writes, You believe that God is one. You do well. 
Even the demons believe this and shudder. This is how the creed begins. I believe in God or we believe in one God just as scripture affirms. And it then continues with the description of the first person of the Trinity, the Father Almighty. And this affirmation is that God is the Father. But it doesn't really explain of whom. We believe in God the Father, but of whom? I hope we don't have to go into too much depth in this because this is something we here at Open Gate Church have been looking at and celebrating in depth over the last year as we went through the Lord's Prayer, the Beatitudes, and even the Book of Romans. And if you missed any of that, thanks to technology, you can now just head over to our website, click on the podcast, and have a good listen to any or all of these discussions. I don't know if I'd do that, but yeah. (laughs) But to quickly review, when we refer to God the Father, who are we speaking about? We're still speaking about the triune God. But we are talking about the first person of the Holy Trinity. From whom the Son is eternally begotten, as we read in John 3.16 and elsewhere. And from whom the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds, as we read in John 15.26. And the Gospel according to John chapter 5 We read that quite early on in Jesus' ministry, the Jewish religious leaders were seeking to kill Jesus already because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, which was a problem. It was considered blasphemy because, as John explains, this was making himself equal with God. Jesus called God Father. And in perhaps the most well-known verse of all Scripture, John 3.16, John describes Jesus as God's only, or one and only, or only begotten Son, depending on your translation. However, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray to our Father. If Jesus is God's only son, and those who didn't understand this yet considered him saying so to be blasphemy because he was making himself equal with God, why do we get to call God Father? Well, again, we have been looking at this over the last year. We've been celebrating that it is because of Jesus and what he has done and his work on the cross. Because of Jesus, God brings us back into relationship with him, into the relationship that he's always intended for us. He adopts us as his children, enabling us to call him father. And we explored this amazing news in Romans and heard it again in our reading this morning from Romans 8, beginning at verse 15, which said, The spirit you received does not make you slaves. Giving your life to God doesn't mean signing your life away to bondage to a bunch of rules so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received actually brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we are now able to cry, Abba, 
Father. The Spirit, the presence of God dwelling in us, himself testifies as a witness, is evidence, along with our spirit, that we are God's children. So Jesus revealed that he was God's only divine son. He called God his Father, but he did also teach his disciples to do the same. And what an amazing cosmic privilege this is. But what do we mean when we call God Father? The very opening of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, tells us God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. I had a question about this earlier today, but here it is. Already we see this apparent contradiction between singular and plural, and it's not just because Scripture can't do grammar good. The Bible's already describing a God who is one, but more than one person simultaneously. God's not talking to other gods. We've affirmed there's only one God. It's not, he's not talking to angels. Angels are not created in the image of God, nor we in the image of angels. Genesis tells us in the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. So in our statement of faith, as in our prayers, when we call God Father, it's a declaration that we believe he created us. It's a declaration that we recognize we were created in his image. We share his DNA in some sort of way. I don't not scientifically, don't get to. But it's also a declaration that we recognize that we were created for relationship with him. The loving, caregiving relationship between a father and his children as it was intended to be. And again, we saw when we journeyed through the Lord's Prayer together that Jesus taught us to address our prayers to our Father in heaven, as we heard again in our gospel reading. And some of you may remember that when we looked at this, we saw that the title Father is both an official designation of honor and reverence, as well as a term of affection and endearment that describes a secure relationship, a warm bond within a family. So that all who are adopted as God's children through faith can, with a sense of peace, with a sense of awe, with a sense of excitement, call God our Abba, Father, our Father in heaven. And not only do we affirm this in our statement of faith, but as Jesus taught his disciples, taught us, we can address our Father in heaven in this way in our prayers, as our Father, our Abba who hears the prayers of his children and is willing to answer them, and our Father, the Almighty, who sits on his throne in heaven, who rules the heavens and the earth, who is willing to answer our prayers and is able to do so. And this is why our catechism explains that calling God Father is also a declaration that we trust him as our protector and as our provider 
that we put our hope in God as his child and heir. And so we recognize and declare that God the Father is Almighty. And our catechism goes on to explain that we call the Father Almighty because he has the power over everything and accomplishes everything that he wills. Together with his Son and Holy Spirit, the Father is all-knowing and ever-present in every place. And we see this again in our Gospel reading from Matthew 6. Right before Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer, he informs his disciples that our Father already knows what we need before we ask him. So as Daryl Johnson puts it, the Father of Jesus, who by grace is our Father, knows that we need bread, sustenance, forgiveness, reconciliation, guidance, and protection. But it turns out that our greatest need is the Father himself. So it is an incredible gift, an incredible honor and privilege that he gives this to us. The privilege, but also the right to call the Almighty God our Father in heaven. And it's an incredible blessing to know that we can trust him as our protector and our provider. But once again, as we say these things, as we reflect on them, we must also recognize that saying it, understanding it, and believing it are all different things. We have recognized before, and it's always worth remembering, that relationships with fathers can be problematic, even traumatic for a lot of people, full of disappointment, pain, anger, abandonment. We can joke about it with Darth Vader, but it is a very real issue for a lot of people. And sadly, it's not just a few, but many who struggle with the image of a father as someone we can trust. Perhaps this is just one of the reasons that we as human beings tend to have so much trouble just accepting all that he has to say in his words, simply on faith alone. We have also tried to remind ourselves that God, our Heavenly Father, isn't like our natural fathers. That he is perfect in his love. He is almighty in his care. He doesn't make errors in his judgment. And he does discipline us, but only for our own good. However, again, hearing it, understanding it, and believing it are different things. And believing in that can be a challenge for some, actually for many. One of perhaps the two greatest objections to faith in the God as revealed in Christianity is the problem of suffering. And it leads to a question that we've all asked ourselves at some point, probably. If God is such a good father, why does he allow his children to suffer? Why, in our reading from Romans, right after explaining that we've been granted a new life, a new family, a new status, we're no longer sons and daughters of Adam, born into slavery to sin and death, but sons and daughters of God born to a new life as heirs 
of God's eternal kingdom? Why after this amazing revelation does Paul go straight on to share about our shared inevitable suffering? And we did look at this question briefly a few weeks ago when we went through this passage in our series through Romans. But there is a lot more than can be said on the matter. And this is what I'm personally already finding so life-giving, so exciting, so promising as we start this series, is that we have time to really get into this and grapple with it. Not today, though. Um, Last night, I realized we don't have time today, so I had to cut the second half of this (laughs) sermon. But there is the promise that we get to look at it another day, and I don't know whether that's disappointing or relieving. I'm guessing the latter. There is this promise that we have a chance to wrestle with this problem of suffering as we go through the creed. It's going to come up again and again. And that's good that we get to address these issues that many of us have. But for today, we're going to close by just being thankful that God is our Father. And just like a father, he understands that we grapple, that we wrestle, that we are growing, and that a part of that is learning. But a part of that is also coming to understand that Our earthly parents sometimes know best. Our Heavenly Father always knows best. And part of our growth in spiritual maturity and wisdom is learning that we are no longer slaves to fear, that we are children of God, and that we can and should put our trust in our Father in Heaven. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you are the good Father, that you are the Almighty Father who loves us, who longs for us, welcomes us, accepts us, adopts us, provides for us, protects us and grants us forgiveness of our sins, grants us freedom from death and suffering, grants us the eternal promise of life and peace with you. And so we pray, may we continue to grow as your children, continue to learn to trust you in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.